Tonight's scripture reading is Jonah 3, starting in verse 3, halfway through and ending with the end of the chapter, verse 10. Jonah 3, starting in the second half of verse 3, through the end of the chapter. And before I read, let me pray. Father, we thank you once again for your word. We thank you that you are a God who speaks and that by the power of your spirit, the spirit of the risen, exalted Christ, we can hear your voice. We thank you that you speak to us through your scriptures, and we ask that you would do that tonight. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, starting halfway through verse 3. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh by the the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them and he did not do it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I shared before, probably a year ago or more, that one of the things that God used to bring me to repentance and faith in Christ was the book Little Pilgrim's Progress. Little Pilgrim's Progress. It's a children's version of John Bunyan's classic Pilgrim's Progress. Has anyone read either of those? Pilgrim's Progress or Little Pilgrim's Progress? A few? Yes. So I have my copy at home. Inside the cover, it says that it's from my grandma when I was turning seven. So I've had this book for a while. And the story, Little Pilgrim's Progress, begins with these words. Little Christian lived in a great city called Destruction. Little Christian lived in a great city called Destruction. In our passage this evening, Jonah enters a great city. He enters a great city that's about to become a city of destruction. Yet 40 days. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. But what happens? What happens? The people of Nineveh repent. From the greatest to the least, they repent. And God, 
He does not do what he said he would do. What does this story have to do with us? It has a lot to do with us. My hope is that you will hear this simple, true story in Jonah. This story of repentance and faith. And you would say, that's me. This is, this is me. This is the story of what God has done for me in Jesus Christ. And as you marvel, and as you marvel again at God's compassion to you, may you be moved. May you be moved to faithfully share the good news with every unbeliever in your life. So with that said, let's start tonight with the setting. That's where this passage starts. Look with me again at verses 3 and 4. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. Nineveh, it says, was an exceedingly great city. It was probably big and large, but the sense of the word great here probably has more to do with importance. It was really, really important. So in our day, that would be a city like Washington, D.C. Whatever you think of Washington, it's a really, really important city. Nineveh was a great city. Don't forget that it was also an enemy city. After all, we're not talking about one of the cities in Judah or Israel. We're talking about Nineveh. This is the Assyrians. So the connotation would be something like... Pyongyang, North Korea. That's that's the connotation. This is an enemy city. So it's an important city, it's an enemy city, and we learn that it was a three days journey in breadth. You may have a footnote in your Bible that gives another good option. It could also mean a visit was a three days journey. It could mean a three days... um, It could mean, uh, let me find it again, a three days journey in breadth. It could also mean a visit was a three days journey. Either way, the point is the same. Jonah began to go into this city, the city of Nineveh, and he went preaching the message that God had given him. Before we move on to what exactly Jonah preached, let's pause. Let's pause and consider the significance of this moment. Do you remember how the book of Jonah began? Do you remember how it began? Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee, to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. That's how the book began. What is Jonah doing now? What's he doing? He's obeying. He's following the Lord's command. He's doing what God gave him to do. God never gave up on his faithless prophet. God never gave up on Jonah. He hurled a great wind that stopped Jonah in his tracks. He appointed a great fish to swallow him so that he wouldn't drown. And God graciously recommissioned Jonah. He's not done with him. He recommissioned Jonah to go to Nineveh as he had first commanded. In other words, 
as we look at this story, it's a story from, of guilt and grace and gratitude. It's a story of guilty sinners, you and me, being rescued by God. God has rescued you. He has rescued you in His Son, Jesus, and now recommissions you to walk in faithful obedience. In this passage, we see Jonah's obedience. Let me pause for a second and ask the question, where do you see, where do you see obedience in your life? How do you see yourself now doing what God had at first commanded you to do? In other words, put yourself in this story. Where do you see this true in your life? This past week, we had community group, and I was really encouraged. During our discussion time, we were, we were discussing a verse from Psalm 27, a verse that says, One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. And the devotional for that night was getting us thinking, Okay, here in this psalm, the one thing that the psalmist is seeking is the Lord. What are the other things that we seek? What are the other things? Whether they be comfort or power or family, any number of things. So it was a really good discussion. And at the end, we asked the question, okay, we see a lot of ways in which we are substituting other things for God. Where do you see yourself pursuing God? Where do you see this verse being true. One thing have I asked of the Lord. Where do you see that true in your life? And three men in our group, one after the other, shared, this is, I see this in my life. God is changing me. In these areas of my life, the Lord is the one thing, the one thing that I seek after. So the question, again, is, where do you see the Lord working obedience in your life? Where can you see yourself, like Jonah, now obeying where you had once disobeyed? Well, let's turn now to Jonah's message, beginning in verse 4. Well, actually, yes, I'll start at the beginning of verse 4. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Jonah's message is one of coming judgment. It's a message of judgment. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Can you think of any Old Testament cities that were overthrown by God? Cities in the Old Testament that were overthrown by God. Two that might come to mind are Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah. Here's what we read in Genesis 19. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and he overthrew those cities. He overthrew those cities. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. The message was one of coming judgment. Here are two takeaways 
from Jonah's message. The first is simply this. Warn unbelievers. Warn unbelievers. Warn unbelievers of God's coming judgment. The good news of Jesus is good news because there is such bad news. The good news of Jesus is so good because there is such bad news. Yet 40 days, yet 40 months, yet 40 years, and unbelievers will suffer God's wrath and curse in hell forever. Yet 40 days, or 40 months, or 40 years, and unbelievers will suffer God's wrath and curse in hell forever. Warn unbelievers. Someone loved you so much that they warned you. Warn unbelievers. And perhaps later, during our Q&A time, during our time where we could share testimonies, I think it would be worth spending some time asking the question, what does that look like? What has it looked like for you? What, how did others warn you before you became a Christian? Or how has, what has warning others looked like? So we'll come back to that. But warn unbelievers. The second takeaway is this. Say a sentence. Say a sentence. A sentence may be all that God needs. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. We don't know if this is all that Jonah said, or if it's a summary of, of, what, of many things that he said. We don't know. Maybe he walked the streets of Nineveh simply repeating over and over this very line. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. We don't know. Either way, the point is that God can use a sentence to bring about salvation. Perhaps your conversion, perhaps your coming to Christ illustrates this very truth. I don't know all of your stories, but maybe God used a sentence or just a few words to bring about your salvation. There was a Christian in your life and he spoke the truth simply, clearly, directly, and you believed. Those words touched you. They reached you, and you believed. And all it was was a sentence. Be encouraged in your evangelism. I find this encouraging. I think we can all find this encouraging. The Holy Spirit can use a humble sentence to bring about someone's salvation doesn't need to be an eloquent sermon. A sentence is what the Holy Spirit can use. As we see in the next verse, that is exactly what happened. Exactly what happened. Listen to how the people responded. Verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Something struck me as I studied this passage, as I read this verse, notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say that the people of Nineveh believed Jonah. No, it says they believed God. They believed God. They heard an unknown prophet. We don't know who this guy is. They heard an unknown prophet speaking a message of God's judgment, of divine wrath. The city will be overthrown. And they didn't receive Jonah's message as the word of man. 
They received it as nothing less than the very word of Almighty God. What was this like for you? What was, what was it like when you first believed God's word? Maybe for you, it was, it was a moment. Or maybe it felt more gradual. Regardless, as a Christian, at some point or in some time period, you came to the realization that God himself was speaking. God himself. This is, this is not the word of man. This is the word of God. You believed God. And like the Ninevites, you humbled yourself before him. You may not have fasted, and you probably didn't put on sackcloth, but you believed. You believed God, and you humbled yourself before him. This is what the people of Nineveh did. They heard Jonah, and they heard him as speaking the very word of God. And all of them did, from the greatest to the least. And you ask, no, that can't be true. From the greatest? Really? Well, that would include the king. That would include the higher-ups. There's no way. There's no way that the higher-ups believed God. Well, look again at verse 6. Verse 6 tells us, The word reached the king of Nineveh. And what does he do? Look at this sentence. He arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. This verse answers at least one question. Who should repent? Who should humble themselves? Who is in need of the salvation of God? All people. All people are. From the greatest to the least. From the greatest to the least. The word had reached the king, and he made this decree. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger, so that we may not perish. What's happening here? The king calls for a citywide fast. No food, no water. As you all know, food and fluids are so basic to our survival as humans. Think about all of the time that we spend that's oriented around food. We spend hours shopping for food, making food, eating food, I wonder what all of our daily routines are. Each morning, I fill up my water bottle and I take it to work. And I, on most days, I fill it up again. I'm drinking water throughout the day. Some of you have a cup of coffee in the morning or several cups throughout the day or tea or whatever it might be. Think about your daily rhythms of food, of drinking fluids. They're so basic to who we are, and that's, and that's God's design. That's God's design. He, he made us body, soul beings. So there's nothing wrong about that. Here's the question. What would cause someone to forego food and water? 
What would cause an entire city to fast until further notice? As we see in this passage, one cause is the anger of God. The fierce, holy, righteous anger and wrath of God. That would cause someone to fast. The king's saying, everyone, everyone listen. Forget food. Forget water. Forget breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Not just for you, for all of the domesticated animals. Whoever you are, don't eat. Don't drink. We've received word of God's imminent judgment. Can you relate? Can you relate to what's happening here? Can you relate to having such a sense of danger, such a sense of your deserving the judgment of God, that other things didn't matter? Forget food. Forget water. There in that moment, all that mattered for you was calling out to your God. You forgot about your schedule. You forgot about when dinner was. You forgot about all sorts of things of this life. And there you were before God, recognizing, I deserve his judgment. I experienced something like this as a young child. In many ways, my experience of conversion was a gradual one. But there are a few moments along the way. And I remember how the Spirit at one time impressed upon my, my conscience, upon my mind and heart, these very things. That I was a sinner. That I deserved God's judgment. That my only hope was in Jesus. I didn't wear sackcloth. I probably didn't know about fasting. But... Sort of, I think I would have knelt by my bed. There's, there's a vague memory of praying in my bedroom. I wouldn't doubt that I knelt. Maybe in your own experience of conversion, there was a physical manifestation of turning to God. You humbled yourself before him. There in a moment, all that mattered for you was turning to your God and crying out for mercy. That's what's happening here. They turn to God. They turn to God in repentant faith, in believing repentance. And I want to point out two things here about repentance and about faith. We see both of them here, and and they go together. Believing repentance, repentant faith. Just a reminder of what repentance is. Our shorter catechism is really helpful. It says... Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, does, with grief and hatred of his sin, turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. That's printed for you in your worship guide, I think on the inside cover. It is a long sentence. You may not have gotten all of that in one reading. But it's what we see here. It's what we see here. We see the people of Nineveh humbling themselves, calling out to God, and turning from their sin. And if you are a Christian tonight, then this is what God 
by his spirit, has worked in your life. He has given you this saving grace, the saving grace of repentance. In some way, shape, or form, this is what happened in your life. You turned from your sin unto God with full purpose of, with a heartfelt conviction that you wanted to obey, to obey him and no other. We see this in the people of Nineveh. We also see their faith. We see this in verse 5. They believed God. We also see it in verse 9. Who knows? Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. One commentator says, this was not mature faith or strong faith or or the full assurance of faith by any manner of means. But it was faith nonetheless. Why? Because they threw themselves helplessly on God's character. They threw themselves helplessly on God. We've seen something like this before. You may remember what the ship's captain said back in chapter 1. He said to Jonah, Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us. So in the Ninevites, what do we see? We see repentant faith. We see believing repentance. They turn to God. They trust in Him alone. Somehow, some way for salvation. That brings us to the end of verse 9. The people repent. Will God relent? The people, of pent, uh, the people repent, but the verdict is still out. What will the just judge do? What's his verdict? Will God relent? Who knows? The king asked the question, who knows? Who knows? Someone does know. You know who knows? Israel knows. Israel knows. Israel knows God's character. Long ago in their history, what did they witness after one of their apostasies? Specifically after the golden calf apostasy. Moses prayed to God, and these are his words, Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Turn from your burning anger, Lord, and relent from this disaster against your people. And God did. God did. The people of Israel know that God is a God who turns, a God who relents, a God who responds to repentance, who responds to the intercessions of a mediator. They know this. They know this. This is part of their spiritual heritage. They know God's character. The king asks, who knows? Israel knows. As Jonah acknowledges in the very next chapter, I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Jonah knows this. He's part of the covenant people of God. They know the character of God. And yet, Israel, Israel needed to repent just like the Ninevites did. Israel needed to repent, and to the dismay of the prophets, they didn't. 
And the irony of ironies, who was it that conquered at least the northern tribes? Assyria. Assyria. Assyria conquered Israel. The covenant people of God didn't repent. Nineveh did, and they conquered Israel. Wow. Wow. While Nineveh repented, Israel didn't. Israel didn't even repent with the coming of Christ. Jesus came to his own and his own people. They didn't receive him. Jesus would say this. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the, rep- at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus said, the men of Nineveh will rise up. They repented. And something greater, someone greater is here. Well, the verdict at this point is still out. The people repented, but would God relent? And what we find in verse 10 is this. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So, how does God respond to repentant faith? How does God respond to you when you call out to him? God relented of the disaster he had said he would do to you, and he didn't do it. God relented of the disaster he had said he would do to you, and he didn't do it. As we think about this, as we think about this verse and what we see God doing or not doing, it made me think of the passage from Romans last week. Let me just read a few of those verses. Um, Troy, you um, summarized or read some of these this morning. But Paul says in Romans 3, those uh, who have faith in Jesus Christ are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. He had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What we see in this story, and this is why I thought of it, is a God who passes over sins. We see a God passing over sins. God does not pour out his judgment on Nineveh, a place, a city of unceasing evil. God passes over their sins. And how can God do that? How can he do that? How can he pass over former sins? How can he be just and the justifier of sinners? People like you, people like me, people like the Ninevites. How is this possible? Well, as Paul says, it's because your faith is in Jesus Christ the one whom God put forward. God put forward Jesus to die on the cross, to bear the judgment, to be overthrown, to be condemned in your place, in my place. 
It was Jesus who bore the fierce anger, the fierce anger of Almighty God so that it's turned away from us, so that it's no longer ours to bear. God relented of the disaster that you deserve, that I deserve, because he didn't relent of the disaster that he destined for his son. God relented of the disaster that you and I deserve because he didn't relent of the disaster that he destined for his son. Jesus died on the cross. So who knows? The king asks, who knows? Will God turn and relent? Is there a way that we might not perish? Who knows? We do, brothers and sisters. We know. We know that God is a God who relents, who turns from disaster. You know, and I know, that God is a gracious and merciful God. He is slow to anger. I can testify to it. You can. He's abounding in love. You, as a Christian, know that your God is a God who relents from disaster. He relents from condemnation. So God has brought you, he has brought me, he has brought his people out of the city of destruction. We are pilgrims. We are on our way to the heavenly city, to the celestial city. And that's, that's enough for us to marvel right there and then. But may we also faithfully proclaim Christ so that, men, so that as many as people so that as many people as possible, as many people like the people of Nineveh, will join us there. Amen.